Jeremy, and thank you, John. And John gave me a bottle of water. I'm not quite sure what the hint is, but he said, don't leave until it's finished. So, Okay, we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 15. Let's stand in reverence for the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 15, verses 2 through 7. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. We're going to focus on verses 5, 6, and 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Please be seated. We're looking at body language this morning. Body language is a type of communication which is not physical. It might be the way we look at somebody or don't look at them. The distance and space that we put between ourselves and other people, uh, our gestures, how we use our eyes. Sometimes we roll our eyes and that's a gesture, isn't it? We know what somebody's saying. Uh, body expressions and postures and movement and touch and so forth, that's all body language. However, that's not what I'm talking about this morning, so don't take notes on that. What I'm talking about is the language of the body of Christ, the local church. Paul here says, accept one another. Sounds easy, doesn't it, if you don't think about it? And it sounds easy if you don't try it. But when you think about it and when you try it, it gets a little bit more difficult because there's so many differences in our midst. I don't think there's any advanced industrial society in the world that's more politically divided. Politically dysfunctional as we are as a country. Paul wrote Romans there was tension in Rome. There was division in Rome. It was difficult in the early church. And the early church could not change Rome, but they could model unity. They could model love, and they could model acceptance. And if there's one place there ought to be unity today, it's in the church. If there's one place you ought to feel love, it should be the local church. Yes, we are different in personalities. And I'm aware that some of you have several personalities. We're different in gender. Men and women think differently. We process things differently. We're different in our spiritual growth and our backgrounds. We're different in how we were raised. We're different in our convictions and beliefs about non-essentials. We're different in our interests. We're different in how we communicate. We're different in our weaknesses and our strengths. 
We're different in our preferences. And we are still sinful people. We are, as the hymn writer said, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And you know what? We're not fully sanctified. Not one of us. We're on our pro- and in the process of getting there, but we're not there yet. And here in verse 7 we read, Therefore receive one another, accept one another, as Christ received us to the glory of God. Paul calls upon the believers in Rome to accept one another even though they were different. <clears throat> we learn from Paul's word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we are to accept one another in the church just as Christ accepted us. I want us to think about that this morning in our message. How did Christ accept us? The kind of forbearance he had for us, the love that he had for us. If Christ had dealt with us as we deserved, not one of us could have a standing before him today. Christ showed patience, he showed love, and Paul says, accept one another as Christ accepted you. And this is not just a good suggestion. It's not even a recommendation. It's a command in the Greek. It's there as a command. God wants and expects his people to accept one another. He wants us to be known as a people who accept and love one another. Accepting one another is to accept and to receive one another with special care. Some of us may remember our school days when either the teacher or the phys ed teacher said, I want you and you, you two, come up here and select teams. You're going to be the captains. Any of you remember that? And there were always a few who weren't chosen. There were always the same few at the very end of the choosing, and the team captain would say, Okay, you can be on my team. That's not what Paul is talking about. Okay, we accept you. You can be on our team. Some kind of reluctance. He's talking about godly acceptance of one another. Biblical acceptance. There's one biblical example given over in the book of Philemon. That's a wonderful example of, of acceptance. A man named had run away. He was a slave. He had run away, and somehow he encountered the Apostle Paul, got saved, uh, began to grow in the Lord, and said, maybe I better go back to my master, Philemon. And Paul said, that's a good idea. Let me write a letter to Philemon. And then we have the whole book of Philemon, mostly written about Onesimus. And if you drop down to verse 17 in Philemon, you read these words. Philemon if you consider me in fellowship with you, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. That word welcome is proslambos in the, uh, in the Greek. It's the same word we have over here in Romans. To accept him, to value him. Value Onesimus as you would value me. Welcome him as you would welcome me. Actually, that word means take him into your heart. When we welcome one another, we take people into our heart. We take them into our life. We accept with special care, with special concern. Another meaning for that word is to take them by the hand. And I love to take little Timothy by the hand. 
he's at that point now where he reaches for my hand and we go somewhere, we do something. And he, I took him by the hand yesterday and he wanted to shovel snow from here to over here. And for a half hour, <laughs> we moved a pile of snow from here to over here because he took me by the hand and I took him into my heart and we did it. Not something I wanted to do necessarily on Saturday afternoon, it was cold outside, but he took me by the hand and I took him into the heart and we were able to do it together. That's what it means to accept one another, to take the interest of another. There's another wonderful uh, example of this over in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, and we'll kind of drop into the middle of that account there. It's about a man named Apollos. Apollos is from Alexandria in Egypt. He was a, a learned man. He uh, had gone to a lot of school. Luke tells us that he was thorough in the knowledge of the scriptures, and he had come to Ephesus, and he was teaching there in Ephesus, and a husband and wife team were listening to him teach. They were Aquila and Priscilla. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. The uh, scriptures tell us he spoke with great fervor. He spoke accurately about Jesus up to a point. He only knew the baptism of John. And so Aquila and Priscilla said, come home. We have a pot roast. Come home, have, have dinner with us. And they explained to him more fully the way of the Lord. Priscilla and, Grilla, uh, and Aquila in the Greek said they accepted the same word that we have here, to accept one another. They took this man to their heart. They didn't throw him under the bus. They didn't make fun of him because he didn't know everything. But they brought him home. They took his interest to their heart, and they ministered to him, and they accepted him as a brother in Christ, even though there were some gaps in his theology. What you're asking about, well, yes, we should accept one another, but how about somebody who's sinful? Somebody who's sinning, somebody who's in a sinful condition. What do we do with them? Acceptance is not ignoring a person's sin. Let me make that clear. We can accept somebody and still address their sin. Accepting somebody does not mean we approve of everything they do, believe, or stand for. And there are going to be times when people that we love are going to sin. There's going to be times that we need to go to them privately. And Jesus said, if another believer sins against you, what do you do? Tell the whole church? Gossip about them? No. Go to them privately. Point out their offense. Maybe they weren't even aware of it. Maybe they need to be taught in the word of God. If the other person listens and confesses it, Jesus said, you've won your brother. And you can go on. We cannot accept others until we love them enough to even confront them firmly. Romans uh, 15, where we are, if you just drop down to verse 14, Paul says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to admonish one another. That's warning based on instruction. We're able to admonish one another. That's part of our duty of loving one another, is to take others aside and to admonish them and to help them grow in the Lord. Later, Paul would tell a young pastor named Timothy, preach the word of God. We like that part. Be prepared. In season, 
out of season. And then Paul goes on to say to this young pastor, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage. And so there's rebuking patiently, and there's encouragement that is necessary with good teaching. Another statement Paul says over in Galatians 6, verse 1, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back on the right path. When another believer is overcome by some sin, and he lists some of those sins there, sexual immorality, and then he goes to jealousy, ambition, dissension, envy, drunkenness, or some other sin, we are to accept them gently. Put them back on the road. Help them on the right path when they're overcome by sin. You don't reject them. You don't ridicule them. You don't humiliate them. You bring them back on the right path. So accepting each other, I want to be careful to say, is not accepting and ignoring anything and everything that may be harmful to another believer, but it's loving somebody enough. And that's sometimes hard for us, even as believers, to love others enough to be able to come alongside them and say, I've got you in my heart. I want to help you through this, situ through this situation, excuse me, confronting biblically. And so Paul says, accept each other as Christ has accepted you. God wants us to accept others in the deepest and the fullest sense. He accepted us with love, mercy, and grace. And aren't you glad that when you mess it up, when you sin, you go to God and you ask for forgiveness? He doesn't say, hmm, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> I'm not interested in forgiving you. You wait a while. You suffer for a little bit. Come back and we'll try it again. Right away, he forgives us. That's how we need to be with one another. Loving one another as Christ accepted us. I want us to think about the apostles, and I invited 12 of them here this morning. They're, they're down here in the front two pews, as you can see them over here. And I've seated them in alpha order. But I'd like to introduce the apostles to you. And if you're looking for some new elders in this church, you might want to consider some of these men. There's Andrew. Right over here. Andrew, he has one talent. He's not really there. Don't look for him. Those of you who are looking for him, he's not really there. <laughs> he's got one talent. He's a friendly man. But every time you find Andrew in the scriptures, what's he doing? He's using that one talent. Sometimes we have people in our midst who just have one talent. That's all they do. That's what they do. That's who they are. But they do it well. And they do it consistently and they do it to the glory of God. And so Andrew's always inviting people to Jesus. And then there's Bartholomew or Nathaniel. And we know here's a man without guile. He's a good guy. Except he has one flaw. He's prejudiced. <laughs> people from any other town are not as good as people from his town. And he knows it. And he lets you know that he's from the best town in town around. He has a pride of affiliation. Let's move on to James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't hear much about him. He's quiet. But you know what? James is always there. Every time the believers get together, James is there. And then there's the other James. He was the brother of John. He's the first Christian martyr. The first one to give his life for Christ. 
Paul, but one of our favorites, John the Beloved. We like John, don't we? You know, he was always with Jesus. He was uh, resting on his bosom at the Last Supper. John, the apostle of love. But you know who else he, what else he was known for? His temper. John was a man of temper, a man of great love but of great temper. Once a group of people were not following Jesus, and John said, Master, let's call down fire from heaven. <laughs> let's get rid of people who aren't like us, who don't want to follow us. The apostle of love, a man of great temper as well. In fact, his nickname was the Son of Thunder. Why do you think he was named the Son of Thunder? Because there was rumbling and rattling going on, and sparks flew when he was around. The Apostle of Love was also the Son of Thunder. Oh, let me introduce you to Judas. You know Judas. He betrayed Jesus. He pretended to be one of them for so many years. And he was also a thief. He was pilfering. He was taking from the treasury to help himself. Ah, here's Matthew. Matthew's the black sheep among them. He's a tax collector. Tax collectors couldn't even testify in the court of law in the first century. Remember Jesus talked about harlots and publicans, tax collectors, the greatest sinners of all. They were hated by the Jews. They were friends of Rome, but hated hated by the Jews. Jesus chose him to be among the 12. A rather derogatory term to be called a tax collector in those days. And then there's Peter, impulsive Peter, always doing things, always out there, always had the answer, whether right or wrong, he, he had his hand up in the air. Teacher, teacher, I know that one. I can give you the answer to that. Who do men say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. Peter said, no, you can't go to the cross. I won't let you. And yet he denied him, didn't he? A man of ups and downs. And then they called a business meeting once for Wednesday night. And Peter said, you don't need that meeting. I've already done that. I've taken care of that. Don't worry about it. He was always one step ahead. Always out there in the, in the front. <clears throat> one of my favorites is Philip. Philip was... Tense. He was practical. He was the kid who wore that little pocket visor with six pens in it, you know. He has a, has a green visor on. He's got his little calculator. He could figure anything out as long as it was dollars and cents. He was conservative. He was what we would call today data-driven. Give me the data and I can give you an answer. And then he was the first to say, and we've never done it that way before. Let someone else make the decision. And then we have here Simon the Zealot. You know, a reactionary. The Zealots in 66 AD started a revolt against Rome that finally took down Jerusalem. He was a political extremist. He was committed to hating and assassinating tax collectors. Can you believe that? Jesus called a tax collector and a hater of tax collectors. And here they are together. 
Do you see differences in our body? There's lots of differences. Jesus loved them all and called them to himself. There's Thaddeus, who was steadfast. Oh, good old Thomas. He was fatalistic. Remember Eeyore? Some of you remember Eeyore. He was a negative. Everything was negative. Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die, and said, oh, we'll go with you. We might as well all die together. He was melancholy. He was a brooder. He missed the first Easter, but he was a follower. See, there's leadership differences. Peter quickly emerged as the leader of the group. All at one time or another wanted to be the leaders. They all wanted to lead the group. They argued, who's going to be the greatest in heaven? Who's going to sit on your left hand? And who's going to sit on your right hand? And then there was James and John, who wanted to be the leaders. And you know what? They brought along their mother to advocate for them. Maybe they'll listen to mama. What a group. Jesus called them. And they loved each other. And they served. There were personal di personality differences. The sons of thunder, quick-tempered. Peter was impulsive. Thomas was introspective. Adam was warm. What a difference. Political differences. Simon the Zealot, who hated Rome and wanted to conquer it by force. And then you have Matthew, the tax collector, who's collecting taxes for Rome and for himself. There was prominence differences among them. There were racial differences among them. Philip may have been partially Greek. The Greeks came and sought him, and his name is Greek, is a Greek name. And then, of course, there was Judas. He was the only non-Galilean, and he thought everybody else had a strange accent because they didn't talk like he did, or maybe it was the other way around. There were socioeconomic differences among them. Matthew was most likely quite affluent, he was a tax collector, and he kept some of it. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, kind of middle class, fishermen. Uh, Peter owned his own home. There were theological differences. None of them expected Jesus to go to the cross, and none were expecting the resurrection. So there were all kinds of differences. They differed widely, and yet they were called together, called together to accept one another to dwell in the family of God together, to become one in faith, in spirit, and in ministry. When Jesus calls us, and we receive him, and what happens in heaven? There's great joy in heaven. Not because of who we are, but because we now belong to him. And there ought to be great joy when we see others who belong to him. He accepted us despite our sins. He loved us while we, were, while we were rebellious. He loved us when we were disobedient. He loved us when we ignored him those many years. Romans 5, 8, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, when we weren't seeking after him. We didn't have to clean up our lives or change or do anything to deserve his love. He just took us the way we are. God's love is different from human love. It's a beautifying love. See, God doesn't look for beautiful people. 
and I'm glad for that this morning. He doesn't look for beautiful people. He makes people beautiful. Look at people here this morning. You're beautiful. You can smile. It's okay. You're beautiful. God thinks you're beautiful. You see, Christ didn't wed the church because we're beautiful. Because he wed the church, we become beautiful as his people. And so we're beautiful people. Can I remind you of something you already know? No, no perfect people here. Just forgiven. I shouldn't say just forgiven. I should say graciously forgiven. Becoming part of a local church, whether it's a formal or not, is a commitment of the redeemed and requires frequent forgiveness. Refusal to forgive reveals we have minimized our offense against God and we have maximized our brother's offense against us. Refusal to forgive reveals we have minimized our offense against God. We don't think what we've done against God is so great. But what somebody else has done against me, oh, what we've done against the holy God is great. What others have done against us, as bad as it may be, is really nothing. It's minimal. 1 Corinthians tells us that love bears all things. Men and women of love, agape love, do not abdicate responsibility in relationships. We don't shift blame. We don't turn the blind eyes to the needs of others. We bear. We bear with one another with great joy. We bear with others even when they are a burden, when they disappoint us. And we'll disappoint each other. When they hurt us, when they disagree, even when they offend us, we bear with one another. Christ-honoring fellowship is only possible when believers bear with one another in the spirit of love. And the word bear there, B-E-A-R, is to endure something unpleasant or difficult. Bearing with one another can be unpleasant, it can be difficult, but there needs to be a Spirit-directed willingness to endure with others despite differences and frustrations. We are to live in a spirit of humility and treat one another with patience and compassion. Real relationships, especially in community, will always require forbearance. It isn't just putting up with each other, not just grinning and bearing it, or glossing over, or becoming bitter, which can often happen. We need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4 tells us. If I were to ask you this morning ways in which you can bring glory to God, what would you suggest? You might say, coming to church, serving Him, worshiping Him fervently, having my daily devotions, giving my tithes and offerings. These are ways I can glorify God. Did you think about what's here in our verse? Verse 7. Therefore receive one another as Christ received us to the glory of God. 
Christ received us to the glory of God, and in the Greek it's saying we are to receive one another to the glory of God. Do you want to bring God glory? Receive, accept one another as he received us. Ephesians 3, it says, glory to God in the church, glory to God in Christ Jesus, glory down through all generations, glory in the church. How do we do that? One way is certainly by accepting, receiving one another. Demonstrating his love. The fact that Christ accepted sinners when he who come to him for mercy and forgiveness, glorifies God. When God co converted a proud Pharisee, self-righteous Jew who hated the Gentiles, killed Christians, and God turned him into the apostle, the apostle Paul, that glorified God. When God opened our eyes to the gospel, to the grace of God, that glorified God. And now we are to extend that same grace and that same mercy to one another. Yes, we all have a list of shortcomings. You can talk to my wife afterwards if you don't believe it. We all have it. But we're to accept one another. Certainly with the purpose of growing each other, of helping one another, of maturing one another in the faith, but accepting each other with our shortcomings even when the other person doesn't deserve it. They don't deserve it. We don't deserve God's grace. If it causes the cause, to think about extending grace to others. And it's not just so that we all get along. I mean, that's a nice thought. Oh, they're a happy church. They all get along with each other. That's a nice thought. But Paul says it's for the glory God. That's our goal, to glorify God, to bring praise to him. You see what the Apostle Paul has done? He's given us the example of Christ, and then he's shown us how to do it in Christ Jesus. One definition of idolatry is, is looking to people to do what only Jesus can do. Looking to other people to do what only Jesus can do. When you expect other people to do what Jesus can do, you're going to be disappointed. People will consistently disappoint you. That's not a prophecy, that's just the word of God. People will disappoint. But we have to love because he first loved us. We are to love others because it's a command. And the final apologetic, and it's over in uh, the Gospel of John, John chapter 13, the final apologetic, They've had the Last Supper. Judas has left the group. And when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is, there's that word glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, that's the only place that word little children appears in the whole New Testament until you get to 1 John. And he picks it up over and over and over again. We'll come to that at the end of the message. So stay tuned. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will see me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. 
So now I say, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. And then the final apologetic, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love in the midst of diversity glorifies God in this world, a broken world, a divided world. But the thing that gets God glory is the church that loves one another. And the world can look in and say, how in the world did they get along over there? Look at them. <laughs> they're young, they're old, they're, they're this, they're that. They have this, they don't have that. How in the world do they get along? They're not alike. Some are rich, some are poor. Some have rich pedigrees and some don't. Some have known the Savior since they were in diapers and some just found him recently. Our common bond is what it is, Jesus Christ. It's not our background. It's not our social status. It's not our politics. And so unity in the midst of diversity glorifies God in the world. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because we like to be with people who are like us, do things with people who are like us. The Apostle Paul says it's unity in the local church where people are gathered together that are not like each other, yet they love each other because of the higher, deeper bond. In public opinion surveys, uh, people were asked their religion. Atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. Atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. They are called nuns, not, not religious nuns. N-O-N-E-S. Okay, so you're atheist, you're agnostic, or you're nothing in particular. You're a nun, N-O-N-E. In January of this past year, 2024, 23% of the population said they were Catholics. 24% that they were Protestants. We're winning by 1%. <laughs> and the nuns were 28%. Almost one-third of the population, the adult population, said they're either atheist, agnostic, or unaffiliated. Now, let's drill down on those nuns a bit. Why are they nuns? 47%, half of those nuns, said it's because of experiences they have had with religious people. And most of those were in the church. That's sad, people. That is sad. People are out there and say, people in the church turn me away from religion, from Christianity. Without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen, even when we give the right answers. Now we need to give the right answers, and we need to know what the answers are, but even when we give the right answers, they may be able to refute our answers, at least we think they can sometimes, but they cannot refute love. If they see love and they feel love and they experience love, they cannot refute love, observable love, the truth of the gospel must be declared, defended, and practiced such that the unbelieving world will take note. It should be apparent that something is at work in the local church, and it's love. The unbelieving world is familiar with 
attraction and affiliation and relationships. But for Christians, it should be love, sacrificial love. By the power of the Spirit, we need to practice self-denying service as an act of love to one another. Now, prioritizing love between believers doesn't diminish the fact that we need to reach the world, that we need to evangelize. We are responsible for loving others outside the body. However, when we think evangelistic, and I think we've missed this here, we, the church in general, we've focused on outward evangelism and how to do it, and then we bring people into churches, and they don't see the love. The primary evangelistic tool that we have is to love one another. And as we love one another and demonstrate that to the world, the world will see, the world will believe. That is the final apologetic. By demonstrating faithful, supernatural, self-denying love toward other believers, we can provide unbelievers an illustration of what it means to be loved by God, redeemed by God, Love is the best apologetic we have. Such love is the hallmark of a strong, vibrant, growing local congregation. And when people come to Calvary, Calvary Church, Sage, Boys Brigade, Pioneer Girls, or they bring their children, special outreach events, when they come on Sunday morning, can they say, Behold how they love one another. I'm going to put a piece of caution tape around that, though. Let's be sure as we love one another, that when new people come in, we're not so busy loving one another <laughs> that we don't love the visitors and those that God sends here. They need love. They need warmth and welcome. So as we love each other, just remember that little caution. Look around, see, who, who don't you know? And if you don't know somebody and they've been coming for seven years, it's okay. You can introduce yourself, say, I don't know if I've ever met you, I've ever talked to you. Somebody greeted my wife and I, oh, about a year ago, we've been coming seven years, I've, we've never seen you before. Well, that was fine, because we felt somebody was looking for us and wanting to greet us and wanting to welcome us. So whether you've been coming here 70 years or this is your first time, Get to know other people and love them as well and love those who come in that God sends in or God brings in. So just have that as a caution. Behold how they love one another. The Apostle John, he was the youngest of the apostles. He lived to be the oldest. And he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote the Book of Revelation by the Holy Spirit. And Jerome, the church father, tells us that when John got too old and he couldn't walk, they would carry him into church. Can you picture that? They carried John into church, and he would say over and over again, little children, love one another. Could I leave you with John's thoughts this morning? Little children, love. It comes from our love from God, but also let us love one another. The church is one foundation.